Exodus 20, 4 through 6. We're considering the second commandment tonight. As I said last time we were together studying this, we're, we're going to consider uh, two aspects of each of these commandments, what is forbidden, what is required. I did want to say tonight, we'll not always spend as equal time looking at those two aspects. Maybe better said the positive aspect of the command or the negative aspect of the command. We won't spend equal time with each of these commands considering those uh, distinctions. Just for your, um, your sake and catching everybody up, this is somewhat of the, uh, the way that I went about teaching through the first command. I, we looked at what the command forbade, what it forbids, and first of all, it forbids the first command, that is, that nothing shall be considered deity besides God alone or besides Yahweh alone. That's especially within this context. Secondly, no thing may take the place of worship in us that belongs only to God. That's what the command forbids. Now, what the command positively speaks or requires is that Yahweh must be our great and only object of worship, number one. Secondly, we must worship him because he is God, and as such, we worship him for his unique attributes, that which makes him or defines him as God. And thirdly, we must worship him in Trinity. In other words, we must worship him as who he's revealed himself to be. And that's the only way that we worship God properly. The second command is found in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. We'll read this and then we'll pray. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's also found in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10 if you're taking notes. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would meet with us, teach us of this command again. This is not an age where we can forget this command. We never can forget these commands. Lord, these have to do how we worship you, or that we only worship you, and how we worship you properly, according to your word. And that is of utmost importance to us. And so I pray that we would be attentive, but also that our hearts would be attentive to your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, the prophet asked this question rhetorically. He says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And that question is at the heart of the second command. It's really the heart of what this command is all about. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, if you will, his name is Alec Motyer. Anything that I've read of his has been wonderful. It's been good if you're able to get any of his books. He has some commentaries and some other books as well. He says this about the second commandment and the first commandment. And summarize. The first commandment forbids the worship of any false god. The second demands that we do not worship the true God in an unworthy manner. It is not enough to worship the correct God. We must worship the correct God correctly. Very 
succinct way of putting it, I think, what ultimately the second command uh, teaches us. Well, what does the command forbid? It's, it's pretty plain what it forbids, but I think it's worth considering. Nothing made in the first place shall be worshipped. That seems obvious by it. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So in the first place, nothing shall be nothing made shall be worshipped, and nothing shall be made in order to worship that thing. And this first point corresponds with the first commandment, doesn't it? Since God forbids the worshipping of any other things beside himself, it follows that idols shall not be worshipped. And since a carved image is not God, it's not Yahweh, it is forbidden even for it to be crafted for worship. And that's what's very important about this command. It's not, a, it's not merely the intent, even, that we have in crafting the thing. If the thing that we're crafting is to represent God at all, it is not to be made. So the first commandment forbids the worship of any false gods in the first place. And the second commandment forbids that we create any false gods. Idols, nothing at all that would represent God or that we would worship. And since there are no other gods besides Yahweh, no god shall be made by us or created by us. And this command then cuts off the offense at the creative process. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now this is a timely command for the children of Israel. We can't leave the context altogether and just talk about it in our context. In this context, as I said last time, this is a people that were coming out of a, of a, of a world that was idolatrous in Egypt. And they were going into a world of idolatry in Canaan. And the Old Testament examples abound such to the idols that they would have to uh, be surrounded by. In Egypt, you had Ra, the sun god. In fact, Egypt, since it was animistic, they had basically gods of all creatures and, and all sorts of gods, in, including the river god and the, Ni- the, the Nile god and the frog god and everything, you know, all of their gods. And that, those gods were destroyed, were shown to be weak compared to Yahweh when he brought them out of Egypt. The Philistines had Dagon, the fish god. Canaanites had Baal, the god of fertility, which was a very important uh, god to them. Ishtar or Ashtoreth, there was a series of gods taken by various um, people groups, was the goddess of love or war. It's interesting that when gods are made in those days, when they were fashioned, they were fashioned according to what mattered most to the people. Isn't that exactly what an idol is? something we, we make, we fashion it according to what we want, what matters most to us. And all these nations either lived in or surrounded the land that God had promised to Abraham in Canaan. And here's what God directed Israel to do in Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 7. He says, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess 
served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and, every, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram, which was a tree, almost somewhat like a totem type of a thing. It was like a pole or a tree that they worshipped that symbolized the fertility goddess. You shall burn them with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And so we again can see the urgency of the command for the children of Israel. They were going to be surrounded by this temptation to form God and into the image or to uh, assimilate this kind of worship into their own worship of the one true God. And this type of idolatry doesn't just end in the Old Testament. It continues into the New Testament. Rome had done a good job of taking the Greek gods and putting their own spin on them and their own names to them. But we read about Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, Jupiter, which was Zeus, and Mercury, which was Hermes. And we read about those in the New Testament. And of course, it's very interesting that in the New Testament, one of the great gods in the the secular or the pagan world became Caesar, didn't he? That was the great crime for a Christian to not pronounce, to utter the word Caesar is Lord, whereas they would say Christ or Jesus is Lord, and that's why many of them were put to death. Now, far from any form of true religion, the Apostle Paul speaks about these things in a very unoptimistic way. That's not a very good way of putting it. Acts 17, 22 through 24 Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, in the King James, that's translated too superstitious. The, way, the reason, two reasons why they don't translate that too superstitious anymore is because, is it ever okay to be superstitious? It kind of gives the idea that, it, oh, they're too superstitious, so a little superstition, it's okay, but if you're too superstitious, that... That's not good. But the the actual Greek language should be translated religious. But the very religious just shows exactly what they were doing. Because listen to what, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Listen to what he proclaims to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So the idea here that you could create altars and create these forms that the gods would dwell amongst the people because they have this form there of the God, the Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by human hands, which in fact is what God had revealed to David when David said, I want to build you a house. And God says, let me tell you one thing. I, won't, I don't dwell in houses made by human hands. Now, this is where I get into trouble with these sermons. I have a parenthesis here that I'm not calling a rabbit trail. This is a parenthesis. <laughs> it's about a page and a half, so bear with me. <clears throat> Today there's a resurgence of paganism. And with that is a resurgence of some pretty ancient forms of idolatry. I won't go into all the details, but I want to talk to you a little bit about it. As Christianity historically has moved forward into the world, 
minus perhaps the idolatry that still takes place in Rome, which they call veneration. It's a nice slant on idolatry. But it is idolatry. But for the most part, Christianity has torn down, it has removed paganism from the regions that it has gone into. Paganism is making a comeback. Neo-paganism, as it's called, or one-ism, that might be a foreign term to you, but it's something you should remember, one-ism, teaches that there is an increasing acceptance, and in fact there is an, an increasing acceptance for this idea of one-ism, which at root denies the creator-creature distinction. Now there's all kinds of things in secularism that lends itself to this. But what has happened is that secularism has become or been found wanting on many levels in Western society. And so the question is, where do we have, where do we put our footing in the Westernized society? So oneism denies the creature-creator distinction and thus it has far-reaching acceptance, whether it's by humanists, secularists, Eastern mystics, New Ageism. Everything ultimately is one. Have you ever heard that lately? That matter, since it never dissolves, it's eternal. When we die, we just go back into the thing that we ultimately are. That's a good illustration of what oneism believes. I've recently even read a sympathetic article on the growing movement in Iceland of ancient paganism, practices, rituals, and these are becoming more and more prominent. And they worship their old gods and they form their old idols. To us modern minds, it seems silly that we would even talk about cre creating gods. We'll talk about more what, what creating a little idol means. But one of the things that's giving a resurgence to, resurgence to this neo-paganism is ecology. It's very interesting because as people are studying man-made climate change, they see neo-paganism as a means of being more merciful in the way that we live according to nature, with nature. In other words, they think that in paganism is offered a way for us to live harmoniously with the earth. In essence, almost as quickly as the Western world has rejected Christ, they've replaced him with paganism. It's very interesting. Now, Peter Jones is an author that I would suggest if you're interested in this type of thing. Write his name down, Peter Jones. He has some good uh, books on these topics. Peter Kreef is actually a Roman Catholic, but this is what he says about paganism. He says, paganism is simply the natural gravity of the human spirit, the line of least resistance, religion in its fallen state. In other words, what he says, and this is what he argues, is that when everything else fails for mankind, and it kind of has, we've tried everything, and when it fails, we always revert back to paganism. We always revert back to this ancient type of idolatry. And John Calvin said that the human heart, the human nature, sin nature, is an idol factory, in fact. 
And we see that even today. We see a growing resurgence of it. But this is not new, is it? Romans 1 tells us in verse 18, and I'm going to read through this, and I want you to just read or listen along to this, what the Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23 is especially important to us. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the rest of the text goes on to describe what kind of practices abound in that kind of exchange. When mankind exchanges the image of the the true God for that of the creature, the worship of the true God for that of the creature, all kinds of evil abounds. And he talks about it there. Now, as far as I'm concerned, Romans 1 in that section could have been written yesterday, especially when you read the list of sins that follow in the wake of that type of idolatry. In a way, secularism was kind of a kind of a modern way of, of living as an idolater. It was kind of a sophisticated way. But as we're seeing that fail, as we're seeing that there's no real ground for us to make moral uh, statements or live in accordance with order, with secularism and moral relativism, people are falling away, not moving towards God in general. They're falling back into what's the easiest thing then to do, which is outright paganism. One of the dangers for the church, and this is why I bring it up, not that I think that you're all in danger of entering into paganism, but one of the things that scriptures warn us is when we see that happening, it warns us not to do the same things, but not just do them, but to promote or to allow those things to take place. One of the arguments that's been brought against the church, Christians, for as long as I can remember, since I've been paying attention, is that we're not to judge. Have you ever heard that? You're not to, you're not, you're, who are you to judge? And one of the places we get that is in Romans chapter 2, in verse 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now that sounds pretty good, right? That's exactly what the world wants to teach us. Don't you dare judge me for doing evil. Who are you who judges me? Listen to what Paul says. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, taken rightly, this shouldn't warn us about warning people of God's judgment and God's word and God's judgments, his authority. This should warn us of hypocrisy. 
And although Paul is building an argument against any thought of an inherent righteousness in man, and I believe he's building that argument for both the Jew and the Gentile, the sober point I also want to make is that so many in the church today have bought into the idea that we cannot pronounce God's word to the sinful world. And one of the things the commandments are is they're teaching us of the righteousness of the true God. And so here's a way that the church can actually capitulate with this sin of the world, with these sins that he mentions in Romans chapter 1 that I skipped for time tonight, is that if we don't stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, we, in fact, listen to the final verse in in chapter 1, they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. If we don't announce to the world, even in their paganism, here's the commands of God. Here's the judgment of God upon sin, upon your idolatry. There is, in a sense, as Christians, we are giving an approval then of their actions. And that is hypocrisy. Even to give approval or not to speak out against such practices. What Paul is concerned about in Romans chapter 2 is that those who do such things as the idolaters, as the pagans would do, are at the same time telling them what they're doing is wrong. That's the kind of judgment he is warning against. So my concern, and the reason why I've gone on on this somewhat tangent, is to call us to biblical conformity. The world out there is changing. I didn't really need to tell you that, I think. The world out there is becoming ever more comfortable with sin. And I'm afraid that the church is just capitulating to that. Too often, we're, we're hiding under the stone, and oh, we're not allowed to say that's wrong because we're not supposed to judge. No, you're not supposed to do like sins. And when you speak the word of God, it's not your judgment. It's not your authority that we rest on when we say, thus saith the Lord. Well, what's the opposite of this oneism or the new paganism? It's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Well, that's the joy. In some senses, we were all in Romans chapter 1. Every one of us. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were all driven and, and moving towards idols, towards worshiping other things besides God. I was raised in the church. But until I was converted, until I was born again, I didn't live my life to worship God. I was really concerned about number one. And I was concerned I didn't want to go to hell. And I didn't want people to think I was as bad as I really was. So I put on a pretty good show in front of them. But when God changed me, that idol move, that mute idol, that deadness even within me, the idol of self-glory was removed. But what takes the place of that idol in us? Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 12. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. How could we? And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Notice that the Holy Spirit there, the Spirit of truth, is the one who induces the believer to speak Jesus as Lord. 
So the opposite of idolatry in Romans 12, 2, and 3 is the utterance, Jesus is Lord. And that's our positive instruction, isn't it, from this command? Instead of creating gods for us to worship or deciding how we'll worship God in our own way, we worship God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we offer worship up to God properly. Okay, that's the end of the parentheses. And I'm moving towards the second forbidding negative aspect of the command is that we are not to create anything that represents the one true God. Let me say that again. The second command forbids creating anything that represents the one true God. Now this sin was close to the heart of Israel, close to their story. In fact, at two instances it happens. In Exodus 32, if you want to turn there, very familiar text, verses 4 and 5. This is the children of Israel while Moses is still on Mount Sinai receiving these commands. This is so ironic that this is here. But it's important that we understand what really happens. Sometimes familiarity with the text means that we don't pay attention very much to it. Verses 4 through five, four and 5 is all we'll read. Moses is up on the mountain. The people are getting restless. They come to Aaron. Give us something to worship. Give us something. And here's what transpires. And he received the gold from their hands, that is Aaron, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now we might be tempted to just say that they're just, they're just using the Egyptian gods here. A sense that they're, just, they're using the Egyptian idea of gods here and they're, they're worshiping the Egyptian gods, that they came out of their lands, they must have been familiar with them. But notice what they did. Verse 5, And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. It's almost like Aaron wants to fix them. Okay? And here's Aaron's attempt. He builds an altar before this calf that he just made and fashioned. And Aaron made this proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. You see the assimilation there? Here's this golden calf, and they're worshiping it as the gods that brought them out of Egypt. And then Aaron says, tomorrow we'll worship Yahweh while this golden calf. What's happening here is that Aaron, I think he knows they're only supposed to worship Yahweh. But here's your representation of the one true God. Here it is. You like to have this visual form that you can see. So here it is. And tomorrow we'll worship him through this visual form. This happens again in 1 Kings 12, 26 through 30. When Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, the northern tribes, when it splits from Judah, makes two calves of gold. 1 Kings 12, 26 through 30. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. Now he's worried about that because the house of David is the southern tribes. That's Judah. He doesn't want all of his people to be going down to Jerusalem regularly to worship God there at the temple. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, 
Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Does sound familiar, doesn't it? And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Now that's exactly the same thing that was happening in Exodus. He sets up these idols, and he says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're not worshiping. He's not intending for them to worship false deities here. And in fact, the translation, there is lowercase g, it's still just Elohim. And I suspect that he's telling them, this is your God. These represent your God. The one who brought you out of Egypt. Well, who was that? Yahweh. Yahweh was the one who brought them out of Egypt. And this is a, exactly, I think, what this text this command is forbidding. In both cases, the people attempt to worship Yahweh through a supposed representative form. Now, the second command prohibits our attempts at copying the perfect with the imperfect. Think about that. You know, I grew up reading, I don't know if you had the joy of this, but Chick Tracks. Some of you may still use them. Forgive me if I'm... Chick Tracks and... It wasn't until a few years ago I thought to myself, you know, at the end of every one of these little books, they've got this ghostly picture of God sitting on the throne. They, they tried, he tried to capture an image of God sitting in heaven. And it wasn't Christ, it was God. You might be confused, it wasn't Christ, it's God, meaning in Christ our mediator in human form. And I would say this, as I believe that's a failure to obey this command. There's nothing that we should put down on paper before us that would supposedly represent God. Because everything we put down cannot conceivably or properly convey who he is. We cannot convey to the mind through a photo or through a a sculpture or through a drawing God. And God will not accept worship except for that which truly comes to him as he has revealed himself to be. Isaiah 40, this is one of my favorite texts. We're almost finished. 18 through 24. Listen to the way that God speaks about himself, especially as he contrasts himself with idols. Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol, that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
Has, not, has, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? You could have a theology lesson right here. God the creator, God all-knowing, God all-powerful. And you're going to liken him to a little contraption you made out of wood or gold or silver, or even conceptually, brilliantly, beautifully, whatever you make to imply that this is God falls short of his splendor. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary his understanding is unsearchable. And since it is impossible then for us to create anything which comes to the full measure of God, anything we make for that purpose reduces God to what we just perceive him to be or what we would have him to be, not to what he reveals himself to be. How can we measure infinity? How can the best craftsman or the best artist in the world Render the proportions of God accurately or truly. There's no scale that you can reduce. How can we understand omniscience, define holiness in a figure, or express the invisible? In fact, the holiness of God demands that there is nothing like him. And to attempt to do so on our own is to bring God down from heaven. And to fashion him in our likeness or to the things that surround us or to the things that we desire. And when we do that, we don't desire him for who he truly is. And this is where Rome especially fails when they teach the doctrine of veneration. That you can sit before an idol, whether it be a saint or whether it be an a picture representative of Mary or even Jesus, when they look at that thing, they are expecting that thing to hear them. And when they say that they can bow in reverence to that thing, there is no way they can keep in their mind straight the infinite quality of God and Him only that ought to be worshipped and reverenced in such a manner. This is the beginning of every great sin, I believe, idolatry. We see it throughout Scripture. And so the first command prohibits us from worshiping anything that God has made, and the second prohibits us from worshiping anything that we have made. Or creating it even to just represent the one who is worthy of all our worship.
because what we have made is never worthy of the worship he alone is to receive.